Welcome to Immigration Review, your weekly source for immigration case law updates and insights. I'm your host, Kevin A. Gregg, back again to review the week's presidential immigration cases, rummaging through the decisions so you don't have to. This podcast is sponsored by Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, also known as KKTP, a law firm where I'm also a partner. Whether you are facing an immigration obstacle, a serious injury, or a legal issue in your business, KKTP will aggressively protect your best interests. This podcast is also sponsored by DocketWise, an all-in-one immigration forms and case management solution trusted by thousands of immigration lawyers across the U.S. I really like DocketWise. It makes immigration applications easy by allowing the clients to provide information through simple online questionnaires that are shareable by text or email and available in multiple languages. Not only that, DocketWise provides a comprehensive group of case management features, including invoicing and calendaring, secure messaging, task management, and a lot more. You can learn all about DocketWise and receive a 10% discount on your subscription by heading to docketwise.com immigration review so they know we sent you. And as always, this show does not constitute legal advice and has no bias other than to keep you up to date and to enable you, my dear colleagues, to excel in court. So, without further ado, let's start the review. Welcome back, everyone. Did you miss me? Got a great batch of cases all over the place, so I hope you enjoy. And in case you haven't noticed, I've decided to make it formal. I intend to always start off each episode with a win for non-citizens, when possible. I'll also try to keep decisions from the same circuit together, or at least near one another. And with that standard in mind, on to the cases. First is Chinu v. Garland, published by the Enbank Ninth Circuit on May 13, 2021. This is an Enbank decision, meaning by the full court, about the derivative citizenship statute that Congress repealed in the year 2000. It reconsiders and vacates in part the Ninth Circuit's 2008 decision on the same issue in Romero Ruiz v. Mukasey. Recent appointees Judges Bress, Hunsanker, Bumatai, and Van Dyke all dissented. As I often say on the podcast, citizenship cases are complicated, and if the Ninth Circuit went in bonk to overrule a 13-year-old decision, complication is to be expected. I'll do my best. The decision is pretty much a straight statutory interpretation one, and it involves a statute that, as I mentioned, was repealed in the year 2000. Under former INA Section 321A5, there were two ways for a non-citizen child born abroad to non-citizen parents to automatically become a U.S. citizen when the parent or the parents naturalized. Under the first path, a child, quote, residing in the United States pursuant to a lawful admission for permanent residence at the time of the naturalization of the parent, end quote, was eligible for derivative citizenship. Under the second path, a child was eligible for derivative citizenship when thereafter, that is, after the naturalization of the parent, 
the child, quote, begins to reside permanently in the United States while under the age of 18 years old, end quote. But what does it mean to, quote, reside permanently in the United States, as used in that second path? In the 2008 case Romero Ruiz, the Ninth Circuit said that that path, like the first path, requires that the non-citizen child be a lawful permanent resident, or LPR. But in this case, the en banc court held differently, holding instead that to satisfy the second path, the residing permanently in the United States path, the child must simply, quote, have demonstrated an objective official manifestation of permanent residence, end quote. I'll explain what that is and why in a minute, but at the onset, I remind everyone again that this statute has been repealed, so none of this necessarily applies to the current derivative citizenship statute, a question beyond the scope of this summary. The analysis employed in this case, I'm fairly confident, applies when the relevant occurrence happened before the former statute was repealed. Mr. Chenu entered the United States lawfully with a non-immigrant visa at the age of 13 to live with his mom, and the mom naturalized in 1999 when Mr. Chenu was 15 years old. He applied to adjust to lawful permanent residence in the year 2000, seemingly before the derivative citizenship law was repealed, but due to former INS, quote, administrative error, end quote, he did not become an LPR until 2003. He later got some convictions, DHS initiated removal proceedings, and Mr. Chenu moved to terminate them, claiming that in fact, he was a U.S. citizen. Can't remove those. The case made its way up to the Ninth Circuit, and the panel correctly deemed itself bound by Romero Ruiz, holding that because Mr. Chenu didn't become an LPR before turning 18, he did not derive U.S. citizenship under Ninth Circuit law. But even that panel wasn't happy about what it had just done, and it said so in a unanimous concurrence, that is, concurring with itself unanimously, urging the full Ninth Circuit to review Romero Ruiz. So the Ninth Circuit took up the issue in banc. And here we are. Starting with the plain text of the statute, as we must, the court relied upon the canon that when Congress, quote, uses certain language in one part of the statute and different language in another, the court assumes different meanings were intended, end quote. And here, the first path to derivative citizenship expressly refers to admission as an LPR, while the second path makes no such reference. Not only that, but the term, quote, reside permanently, end quote, as used in the second path, quote, was carried over from earlier derivative citizenship statutes predating the introduction of the term of art lawful admission for permanent residence in the 1952 INA, end quote. So the phrase used in the second path at issue here predates the term LPR. So then how could it equate to LPR? How about that? Plus, the term reside permanently, as used in the second path, appears elsewhere in the INA, but not as a synonym for lawful admission for permanent residence. Now, albeit it appears in the INA in an old World War II provision, but it's still in the INA apparently, and it does not equate to LPR. 
The en banc court also noted that this interpretation of the statute aligns with Congress's likely intent at the time of addressing, quote, the dual objectives of administrative efficiency and family unity within our immigration system, end quote. Remember, there are many decisions out there consistently holding that in implementing the INA, Congress was concerned about family unity. So that was a lot of the reasons for the Ninth Circuit's holding. There were some more, but that's the gist. So now, in the Ninth Circuit, and please read the decision yourself before relying on this, but in the Ninth Circuit, under the Second Path to Derivative Citizenship repealed in 2000, Non-citizens who entered the U.S. as children become citizens at the time that their parent naturalizes if the child, quote, garnered some official objective manifestation of their intent to reside permanently, end quote, in the United States. And this is the case even if that child previously entered the U.S. unlawfully, and even if they were abroad at the time the parent naturalized. This new and bonk interpretation of the statute aligns to varying degrees with decisions out of at least the First and Second Circuits, but not with an Eleventh Circuit decision published in the sentence enhancement context just last year. Oh, pesky Eleventh. Interesting case. Congratulations to Professor Carrie Hong of Boston College Law School and a bunch of attorneys and entities who are starting to become repeat citations on the Immigration Review podcast the highest of honors, and you all clearly researched the heck out of this issue. Couple more things. The decision's worth a read for statutory interpretation and congressional intent analyses and arguments in many contexts. And if you have a case or simply an interest in changes to U.S. citizenship laws since 1907, who doesn't? And how about this? As the dissent notes, Chief Judge Sidney Thomas, who authored the en banc decision, also authored Romero Ruiz 13 years ago, which he just vacated in part. Good on Judge Thomas. It's good to be the chief. But what happens now to Mr. Romero Ruiz? Has he therefore been a U.S. citizen this whole time, and where is he now? Unfortunately, the court distinguishes his case 13 years ago with its very final footnote because he abandoned his adjustment of status application and departed the U.S. before the adjustment of status application was decided, meaning he didn't demonstrate an objective manifestation to reside in the U.S. permanently. Alas, what a client he could have been. But there might be a lot more Romero Ruizes out there. As Judge Bress states in dissent, quote, The statute in question was in place from 1952 to 2000, and the statutory language at issue goes back to 1907. Millions of persons have become naturalized U.S. citizens over those many decades, and if they had children born abroad, those children, now adults, will potentially be derivative U.S. citizens. Keep that right at the top of your mind during consultations, Ninth Circuit practitioners. I know I will. And that is Chenu v. Garland. Sticking with the Ninth Circuit, we have Hernandez Galan v. Garland, published on May 12, 2021. This case is about in absentia motions to reopen. 
Ms. Hernandez Galan and her minor child are from El Salvador, appear to have been apprehended at the border or shortly thereafter, and were charged as removable for not having valid entry documents. They were served with NTAs that did not have the date and time of their initial removal proceedings, but were then mailed notices of hearing with that date. Also, Ms. Hernandez Galan was reminded of the date in one of her regular check-ins with ICE, as certain non-citizens must do from time to time. She appeared for her first hearing pro se and was provided another hearing for July 12, 2016. But Ms. Hernandez Galan and her daughter missed that hearing. Here's why, directly from the Ninth Circuit, because it's important to the case. Quote, Ms. Hernandez suffers from chronic memory problems that stem from a childhood head injury, so she did not remember what the IJ had told her orally about her next hearing date. For this reason, she relied on the information in the notice of hearing. But because Ms. Hernandez cannot read, she asked family members to read the notice of hearing for her. However, this notice of hearing, unlike the first one, only provided a numerical date for the hearing, 07-12-2016. Ms. Hernandez's family interpreted this notation as December 7, 2016, based on how numerical dates in Latin America and most of the rest of the world are typically written with the day appearing before the month, end quote, rather than the other way around, how the U.S. does it. So Ms. hernandez Glan thought that her hearing was in December rather than July. And because she missed her hearing, she was ordered removed in absentia. She received that decision, and two weeks later, she filed a timely motion to reopen, likely with the assistance of counsel, asserting that all of the above constituted, quote, exceptional circumstances, end quote, that therefore warranted reopening under the immigration statute. The IJ and the BIA denied. The Ninth Circuit held that in so denying, the BIA abused its discretion. The INA provides non-citizens with 180 days to file a motion to reopen of an in absentia order of removal when based on exceptional circumstances. Under the statute, quote, the term exceptional circumstances refers to exceptional circumstances beyond the control of the non-citizen, such as battery or extreme cruelty to the non-citizen, or any child or parent of the non-citizen, serious illness of the non-citizen, or serious illness or death of the spouse, child, or parent of the non-citizen but not including less compelling circumstances, end quote. But this is not an exhaustive list of exceptional circumstances, and the analysis requires IJs to review the, quote, totality of the circumstances, end quote. This, in turn, requires IJs to do a few things. First, they should, quote, consider whether petitioners did all they reasonably could to have their cases heard promptly, end quote. IJs should also consider whether the non-citizens had a, quote, motive for failing to appear, end quote, such as avoiding their merits hearing, or, and I very much like this, quote, whether the in absentia removal order would cause unconscionable results, end quote. Here, Ms. Hernandez-Golan met that standard. She explained the above circumstances in detail to the court, including her being kicked in the head by a horse at a young age, resulting in memory issues, and her testimony, presumably in an affidavit, was unrefuted by DHS, as it always is, and it was not inherently unbelievable. As such, quote, to the extent the BIA disregarded this aspect of Ms. Hernandez's declaration simply because it lacked corroboration, it erred, end quote. 
So too, and remember this one, the family's, quote, mistake in interpreting the notice date was reasonable and believable, given the differences in how dates are written numerically in Latin America and in the United States, end quote. This all combined with Ms. hernandez Galan's using her, quote, best efforts, end quote, to comply with the hearing notices required reopening. The Ninth Circuit rejected the BIA's holding in this case that Ms. hernandez Galan could have checked EOIR's automated system to avoid missing her hearing, particularly because she was only ever advised of this option in the court's written notice, which she cannot read. Congratulations to the ACLU and lots of attorneys for the win. Two more things. Remember, the 180-day deadline to file a motion to reopen of an in absentia removal order only applies when the basis is for exceptional circumstances. When based on a lack of notice of the hearing, there is no deadline at all. And of course, I've got to return to the unconscionable results standard for in absentia motions to reopen. In the Ninth Circuit, at least, one of the ways that, quote, an in absentia removal order would lead to an unconscionable result is where a petitioner who demonstrated a strong likelihood of relief is removed, end quote. And here, even though Ms. hernandez Galan submitted evidence with her in absentia motion to reopen that, quote, indicated that she feared general crime and violence in El Salvador, end quote, she submitted a second motion, while on appeal to the BIA, based on changed country conditions in El Salvador that showed, quote, that five of Ms. Hernandez's family members were kidnapped in El Salvador in November 2018, end quote. This sufficed to show a strong likelihood of relief if removed, as did the fact that an asylum officer previously found Ms. hernandez Galan and her four-year-old daughter had credible fears of persecution. The Ninth Circuit indicated that the unconscionable result standard is not required to succeed on an in absentia motion to reopen for exceptional circumstances, but if it's present, it's persuasive. Practitioners, start your mental engines. And that is Hernandez Galan v. Garland. Next is Blanc v. U.S. Attorney General published by the 11th Circuit on May 11, 2021. Having started out with the two big wins for non-citizens, I've got nothing but losses for you all going forward. Enjoy! And sticking with the heady decisions, this one's about voluntary departure and jurisdiction. Judge Wilson dissented. Mr. Blanc is from the country of Dominica, which I admit I had to look up and is a Caribbean country that is not the Dominican Republic. Also, that new Disney series tells me that there's a lot of whales there. Mr. Blanc became an LPR in 1994, but in 2012 he was convicted of two crimes later deemed to be crimes involving moral turpitude, meaning that he's removable and he lost his green card in removal proceedings. In those proceedings, he appeared pro se, and an IJ eventually denied his application for LPR cancellation of removal and for post-conclusion voluntary departure under INA Section 240B-B. The IJ did not, however, advise Mr. Blanc that he might be eligible for pre-conclusion voluntary departure under INA Section 240B-A which is generally easier to obtain because it essentially means that the non-citizen is giving up his case at the onset, and if obtained, would allow Mr. Blanc to avoid removal and would not entail the serious bars to re-entry. 
though his two CIMTs would certainly independently present some problems. Anyway, on appeal to the BIA, through counsel it appears, Mr. Blanc challenged the denial of relief and the IJ's failure to advise him of the possibility for pre-conclusion voluntary departure, as the regulations require IJs to do. The BIA dismissed the appeal, holding in relevant part that Mr. Blanc, quote, did not warrant a discretionary grant of pre-conclusion voluntary departure, making the immigration judge's failure to advise him of this avenue of relief immaterial, end quote. And here, the 11th Circuit did not disturb the BIA's decision. The 11th Circuit recognized that the regulations require IJs to inform non-citizens of their, quote, apparent eligibility, end quote, for forms of relief, including pre-conclusion voluntary departure. However, according to the 11th Circuit, the BIA also has authority to grant or deny voluntary departure, which is a discretionary form of relief. Which brings us to jurisdiction. Under the 11th Circuit's 2020 and Bank decision in Patel v. U.S. Attorney General, currently subject to a pending petition for certiorari filed by our law firm with the Supreme Court, the 11th Circuit takes the position that INA Section 242A2B bars it from reviewing, quote, any judgment relating to a request, end quote, for the listed forms of relief, which include, quote, voluntary departure, except to the extent the petitioner raises colorable constitutional or legal claims, end quote emphasis in the original. Here, even though the IJ appears to have violated the regulations, the 11th Circuit held that the BIA independently decided that Mr. Blanc was ineligible for the relief as a matter of discretion, which in turn bars the 11th Circuit from reviewing the issue. Relying on Patel, the 11th Circuit stated, quote, because the board made a discretionary decision about Mr. Blanc's entitlement to the relief he sought, we lack jurisdiction to review that decision. End quote. BIA, I present you with your roadmap to avoiding circuit review. The 11th Circuit distinguished its 2014 decision in Karapati v. USCIS, wherein it held that even with certain discretionary determinations, the 11th Circuit can, quote, still consider whether the agency had complied with applicable procedures, end quote, when it acts. But according to the 11th Circuit, Mr. Blanc's case is different, because unlike in Karapati, which arose from federal district court, here, Mr. Blanc's case went to the BIA first, as all removal proceedings must, thereby implicating the jurisdiction bars on discretionary forms of relief. Quote, Once the board addressed the alleged error and made its own discretionary decision to deny Mr. Blanc pre-conclusion voluntary departure, Section 242A2B cut off our jurisdiction to hear a claim that the immigration judge erred in failing to advise Mr. Blanc of this form of relief, end quote. Mr. Blanc, therefore, will be removed. I've got some more thoughts plus some good language from dissenting Judge Wilson. Some of you may be wondering, I thought the BIA is precluded from fact-finding. And indeed it is. But here, the BIA relied on the fact that the IJ had found Mr. Blanc ineligible for post-conclusion voluntary departure as a matter of discretion. So it wasn't really fact-finding in the first instance, I guess. It was just kind of shifting the discretionary analysis from relief to relief. Apparently a material distinction. Because indeed, the regulations do generally preclude the BIA from fact-finding in the first instance. 
Next, an interesting requirement that I haven't always remembered. Under the regulations, a non-citizen, quote, must request pre-conclusion voluntary departure at or before the master calendar hearing at which the case is scheduled for a hearing on the merits, end quote. So I guess technically, if the individual hearing is scheduled and your client changes his or her mind and wants pre-conclusion voluntary departure, the regulations might make it difficult to obtain it. Good to remember. Finally, Judge Wilson in dissent reminds us all, in a quote that fits nicely into a due process type motion to terminate, that, quote, agencies must respect their own procedural rules and regulations. And this is especially true where, as in Mr. Blanc's case, an individual's rights are affected, end quote. And that is Blanc v. U.S. Attorney General. Moving on, we have Wynn v. Garland, published by the Fifth Circuit on May 12, 2021. This case is about just what constitutes sufficient evidence of a conviction. Mr. Wynn is from Vietnam and became a lawful permanent resident in 2004. He committed some crimes, left the U.S., and it appears that on his return, DHS treated him as an applicant for admission pursuant to INA Section 101A13C, based on his alleged conviction for a crime involving moral turpitude. Unclear, the decision doesn't say all that, but that appears to be what happened, because normally, a returning LPR is not deemed to be making an application for admission. But upon his return, DHS placed him in removal proceedings to argue it all out. And as the basis for the CIMT allegation, DHS pointed to a 2011 plea agreement that he signed, pleading to forgery and receiving a sentence to 240 days imprisonment with three years probation. But here's the thing. The plea agreement was filed with the state court, but not signed by the state court judge. And, as DHS has the initial burden to establish that a returning LPR should be treated as an arriving alien who is making an application for admission, Mr. Wynn argued that this plea agreement, unsigned by the criminal judge, didn't satisfy DHS's burden by clear and convincing evidence. The Fifth Circuit disagreed. First, it noted that whether the INA's definition of a conviction under INA Section 101A43A, quote, requires DHS to produce a document bearing a judge's signature, end quote, is one that it can review notwithstanding Mr. Wynn's criminal history. So that's not nothing, considering all the jurisdiction-stripping provisions under the INA. But then the Fifth Circuit noted, like the IJ and the BIA, that the plea agreement, quote, was signed by Mr. Wynn, his defense counsel, and the prosecutor, and was stamped as filed and signed by the deputy clerk, end quote. This was sufficient to establish his conviction. Now true, INA Section 101A43A requires, among other things, a, quote, formal adjudication of guilt, end quote, to qualify as a conviction under immigration law. But according to the Fifth Circuit, that term does not require everything outlined by the Federal Rules of Criminal Procedure. If it did, only documents with the judge's signature and an imposition of a sentence in the document would qualify which is exactly what Mr. Wynn is arguing. The Fifth Circuit rejected the argument that it is bound by the Federal Rules of Criminal Procedure to define a conviction under immigration law. So the Fifth Circuit ruled against Mr. Wynn and held that DHS met its burden to establish that he had a CIMT conviction, 
thereby allowing them to treat him as an arriving alien applicant for admission and remove him. One more thing. Although it wasn't discussed or apparently argued, the regulations at 8 CFR section 1287.6, which also bind immigration judges on the BIA, state that for, quote, official records foreign and domestic, they shall be evidenced by an official publication or copy attested by the official having legal custody, end quote. So, the argument goes, even if an unsigned judge's order will satisfy the definition of conviction under the statute, it might not satisfy the regulation if not properly certified, and therefore shouldn't constitute clear and convincing evidence of anything. And that is Wynne B. Garland. The Fifth Circuit's not done with us yet. We've got Mirza v. Garland, published on May 12, 2021. This is an interesting one about terrorism allegations and termination of asylum status. Mr. Mirza is from Karachi, Pakistan, and, quote, developed and maintained a close connection with the Mojir Kwame movement, known as MQM, end quote. He entered the U.S. on a student visa in 1990, overstayed, and was granted asylum in 1993, based on the Pakistani government's persecution of MQM members at the time. But in 2018, his brother contacted the Amarillo Police Department, informing them that Mr. Mirza was now homeless, suffering from mental health issues, and that Mr. Mirza had called his own brother from a private number and told him, essentially, that God had instructed him to kill 30 to 50 non-believers, ranting in a manner admittedly scary when read in the decision. Mr. Mirza was picked up by police, handed over to the FBI, and everyone agreed that he suffers from schizophrenia. But USCIS then decided to issue a notice of intent to terminate his asylum status. Why he never adjusted to LPR status during his 25 years of eligibility is beyond me, and not explained in this decision, although it might have something to do with the aforementioned schizophrenia and homelessness. USCIS stated that it intended to revoke his asylum based on Mr. Merz's quote, recently developed terroristic threats presenting a danger to the United States, end quote, in addition to his quote, previously admitted past involvement with MQM, a group that engages in terrorist-like activity, end quote. And recall, his affiliation with MQM is the whole reason the U.S. granted him asylum in the first place. Mr. Mirza was transferred from a mental health facility to DHS custody and in immigration court, and IJ terminated his asylum status, finding that he, quote, posed a danger to the national security of the United States under INA Section 212B2AIV and matter of AH interpreting that provision, neither of which comes up very often in immigration law. Having terminated his asylum, Mr. Mirza became removable for having overstayed his student visa all those years ago. Mr. Mirza then applied to adjust to LPR status in immigration court, how I'm not quite sure, but the IJ deemed him inadmissible for supporting a terrorist organization, MQM, and then also denied his Convention Against Torture application. The BIA affirmed, as did the Fifth Circuit. INA Section 212B2AIV bars USCIS or IJs from granting asylum where there are, quote, 
reasonable grounds for regarding the alien as a danger to the security of the United States, end quote. In matter of A.H., Attorney General Ashcroft held that, quote, reasonable grounds for regarding, end quote, equates to a probable cause standard. And the danger to the United States standard is satisfied by, quote, any level of danger to national security. It need not be serious, significant, or grave danger, end quote. Although to quote Jack Nicholson, is there any other? The Fifth Circuit found that definition and standard to be the, quote, only reasonable one. String-citing cases that strongly indicate that wherever else in the INA the term, quote, reasonable grounds, end quote, is used, it should equate to probable cause. Noted. So while the probable cause standard is usually pretty good for non-citizens, the Fifth Circuit also affirmed that low-danger threshold outlined in matter of A.H., holding that Congress did not, quote, require some particular quantum of risk before triggering the asylum bar, end quote. This would appear to cover all risk of danger, except a, quote, speculative risk which is insufficient to trigger the statutory bar on asylum, end quote. Not only that, but the Fifth Circuit held that matter of A.H. and the probable cause of danger standard is actually kind of inapplicable here, because USCIS and the IJ didn't hold that Mr. Mirza might be a danger, but rather that he actually currently was one. Having defined the standard, the Fifth Circuit held that the BIA's finding that Mr. Mirza met the definition was supported by substantial evidence. The phone call to his brother and Mr. Mirza's admission to having made the call sufficed in and of itself, and there is, quote, no authority suggesting that a different legal standard applies to the mentally ill, end quote. Finally, turning to the adjustment of status application, the Fifth Circuit noted that MQM has been recognized as a Tier 3 terrorist organization for some time, and that Mr. Mirza has been active in it since 1987, as the details in his own asylum application make clear. In a footnote, the Fifth Circuit recognized the irony of the fact that Mr. Mirza had received asylum based on his membership in this organization in the early 90s, and that he was now being deemed barred from immigration relief for the same reason, but stated that, quote, Congress has significantly expanded the scope of the terrorism bar since 1997, end quote, and so Mr. Mirza is out of luck, and he will be removed. A few more things. While the Fifth Circuit largely rejected consideration of mental health evidence here, it did note that Mr. Mirza had not shown that, quote, his threat was objectively not a threat by reason of his illness, end quote. I don't know what would meet that standard, but I can imagine a few things, and it might also be helpful in the circuits that refuse to follow matter of GGS in the particularly serious crime context, which again should be all circuits because the Ninth Circuit vacated matter of GGS. Also noteworthy, the Fifth Circuit expressly refused to grant Chevron deference to matter of A.H. Continuing the general theme of certain judges' dislike of Chevron, discussed last week by me during the Route v. Garland review. And this panel certainly agrees with that view, stating in a footnote, of course, that, quote, there is a good argument that Chevron should not apply to immigration adjudications more generally, end quote particularly where, as done apparently in a Third Circuit case from 2011, the phrase the BIA is interpreting is, quote, capable of definition, end quote. 
These judges are giving the Supreme Court ammunition to overturn Chevron, at least in the immigration context. And on the whole, and particularly in light of the rampant publication of decisions by the BIA and Attorney General during the Trump administration, overturning Chevron may very well benefit non-citizens. Doing so, of course, would have huge implications and be much broader than simply immigration law. And that is Mirza V. Garland. Rounding out the episode, we have Thaylon v. Attorney General of the U.S., published by the Third Circuit on May 10th, 2021. This case is primarily about past persecution. Mr. Thailan is an ethnic Tamil from Sri Lanka, who in 2007, when he was about 16 years old, was kidnapped and blindfolded with other ethnic Tamils by members of the Sri Lankan army and taken to an army camp. While detained, soldiers hit his head against a wall and punched him in the stomach. He was released after about two hours, and he didn't seek medical help, but he had pain for about three days. He also testified that in 2019, members of the Elam People's Democratic Party, or EPDP, of Sri Lanka, tried to extort money from him over the phone, and that he was targeted for extortion because of the EPDP's false belief that he financially supported a rival political party, the Tamil National Alliance, which was the ruling party where he lived. The EPDP members threatened his life over the phone, and when he refused to pay, they came to his store and threatened to shoot him. By the time they returned a second time, he had fled to Colombo, the capital of Sri Lanka. Shortly thereafter, he entered the U.S. unlawfully and was placed in removal proceedings, where he testified to all of this, and he was deemed credible by the immigration judge. And he was held to have sufficiently corroborated his story. No small feat. But the IJ and then the BIA denied, holding that the 2007 incident didn't rise to the level of past persecution, and that the 2019 incident wasn't on account of a protected ground, but rather was for purely criminal reasons, to get money out of them. And in any event, there was no indication that those individuals would harm him upon his return to Sri Lanka. The Third Circuit affirmed, under its, quote, highly deferential, end quote, standard of review. First, although it deemed the 2007 incident, quote, deeply troubling, end quote, and even though Mr. Thailand was a child at the time, the harm he described just wasn't extreme enough under Third Circuit precedent. Rather, a non-citizen, quote, who can show an escalating pattern of mistreatment will tend to have a stronger past persecution claim, end quote. Plus, Mr. Thailand's claim is undermined by his decades spent in Sri Lanka after the incident. Addressing the 2019 extortion incident, the Third Circuit agreed that the evidence did not show that it was on account of an imputed pro-Tamil National Alliance political opinion. Citing to the lame duck acting Attorney General's decision in matter of AB the second, the Third Circuit agreed that for harm to be on account of one central reason as asylum law requires, the asserted protected ground, quote, must be both a but-for cause of the persecution and it must play more than a minor role that is neither incidental nor tangential to another reason for the harm or a means to a non-protected end, end quote. Applying this standard, the Third Circuit affirmed, because the EPDP members who extorted Mr. Thailan didn't make political demands while they were doing it, nor did they indicate an animus towards Mr. Thailan or his imputed views. 
Just bringing up their belief that he was part of the opposition political party during the extortion is not necessarily sufficient. And here, the facts appear to weigh just on the other side of a nexus finding, and indicate instead that Mr. Thialan was, quote, targeted out of a simple desire for money, end quote. But again, the Third Circuit makes clear that it's ruling this way because of the deferential standard of review on petition for review. The Third Circuit recognizes that an IJ could have concluded otherwise on this record. The court therefore denied the petition for review and vacated the stay, preventing Mr. Thailand's removal to Sri Lanka. Here are some hints at avoiding similar decisions in similar cases. In a footnote, the Third Circuit made clear that usually, the question of whether harm rises to the level of past persecution or creates a well-founded fear of future persecution is a question of fact reviewed for substantial evidence, a standard of review deferential to the BIA. That is unless the agency, quote, misapprehends applicable law, end quote such as where an IJ, quote, examines incidents of alleged past persecution in isolation from each other rather than cumulatively, and to restrict qualifying harm to that inflicted on the petitioner herself, excluding harm, say, to family members or close associates, end quote. If the agency does those types of things, the non-citizen gets de novo circuit review, always where you want to be. Try to turn your case practitioners into that as the petitioner did last year in Herrera Reyes v. Attorney General of the U.S., a case published by the Third Circuit in 2020 BP, or before podcast. And if you're looking for a way to turn a factual challenge into a legal one, here's a suggestion. Despite upholding the no-pass persecution finding, the Third Circuit here did chastise the BIA, reminding them that there is no, quote, hard and fast rule that isolated incidents of beatings that do not result in serious injury do not rise to the level of persecution, end quote. And additionally, that the BIA should not give the lack of harm, quote, dispositive weight, end quote, in its past persecution analysis. If the BIA appears to rely upon either such rule, you may just have an excellent de novo petition for review. And that is Thailand, the Attorney General of the U.S. So there you have it. You're all caught up with the past week's published immigration cases. I'm Kevin A. Gregg, a partner with the law firm Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, and this has been another episode of Immigration Review. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with a friend and rate and review us. Each review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, subscribe to Immigration Review wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what we do and want to become a patron of the show, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash immigration review, or click on the link in the show notes. And if you're interested in an official Immigration Review CLE certificate for five credit hours, email me at kgreg at kktplaw.com with your full name and the episode numbers for the 10 shows you've listened to. Also, feel free to email me with questions, comments, or anything at all. And follow the show on Instagram and Facebook at Immigration Review. And send us a tweet at ImReview. That's I-M-M Review. 
I'll be back next Monday for a brand new discussion. Until then, I'm Kevin A. Gregg, bringing you the Immigration Review.